Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, can the incredible growth of ETFs continue? We'll discuss the ins and outs of exchange-traded funds, their projected growth, and how they stand up against direct indexing. Plus, what's in store for the markets in 2023? That's with our guest, Eric Beagleisen, Partner and Deputy Chief Investment Officer at 3Edge Asset Management. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. We have had a solid start to the year, but it does sort of still feel shaky out there. What are you watching for at the moment? Well, we've definitely had a nice start to the year. We are recording this in mid-January, and we've had the best start for a classic balanced portfolio since 1988. And when I say a classic balanced portfolio, I mean the S&P 500. Yeah, it's just US stocks, kind of large cap growth stocks with the 40% in the bond aggregate index. So that's what I mean by classic balanced portfolio. But more importantly, where to from here? And though I believe there are still issues with the US market, again, namely the TV benchmarks such as the S&P 500, because their valuations, both the trend and the level of them, I do believe there's opportunity. And today's guest will help identify some of those opportunities, not only in the markets themselves, but also regarding the biggest wave of growth in the investment industry, exchange-traded funds, otherwise known as ETFs. All right. Well, let's bring him in. Eric Beagleisen is a partner and deputy chief investment officer at 3Edge Asset Management in Boston. Eric, welcome to The Weighing Machine. Thank you, Robin and Rusty, for having me. Happy to be here. This should be a lot of fun. So we're going to start the fun right off the bat. And we need a walk-up song. We need to imagine some music we can hear as we're doing this interview. I'm giving this some thought, and I keep coming back to this same song, Thunderstruck by ACDC. That song is just really cool. You get really jazzed up. You can't help but getting amped up. You know, We've seen it in trailers for Iron Man and Varsity Blues for all those folks out there who've seen that movie. Deadpool. It's a good song. Gets you pumped. If you don't get pumped mm-hmm. up to Thunderstruck, you're not a human being. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. And there's our quote for the episode. Okay. So, Eric, you have worn a lot of hats in your career. You started out as a software engineer. You've been a director of research. You've worked in quantitative research and portfolio management. Tell us more about your career and how you came to your current position. Yeah, I spent my undergrad and graduate time studying electrical engineering, went to work for a couple of different defense contractors in fields completely unrelated to finance, and went and got an MBA and sat for the CFA as well and found a passion for finance and thought, you know, hey, maybe there'll be some interest in someone wanting skills of a programmer, but moved into the financial arena. And sure enough, there is a need for such a thing, or at least we like to pretend there is. And people kept pointing me towards this guy named Stephen Cucchiaro, who had founded a firm called Windward Investment Management in the mid-90s. And, you know, about 15 to 18 interviews later, he hired me on. (laughs) Windward grew from a small 
boutique investment management firm up to about close to $4 billion and then was acquired by the Charles Schwab Corporation in 2010, at which point it changed its name to Windhaven Asset Management, Windhaven Investment Management, building portfolios, quantitatively driven, multi-asset, globally diversified portfolios. And so we, we carry that stick here at Three Edge. Several years later, many of us at the Windward Windhaven got back together at Three Edge, which was founded in late 2015. We're managing close to 1.7 billion now in combined AUM and AUA. Right. That's great. So tell us more about the work that you and your team do at Three Edge. Yeah. So I'm on the research side. There are three of us, myself, Steve, and a third gentleman, Bob Phillips. And really what we focus on is this model of the global capital markets that we built. That's a true cause and effect model that combine these valuation economic and investor behavioral factors. And really at the core of what we do, we have really three tenets that guide our our high-level investment philosophy. So the first is that we believe that markets are somewhat micro-efficient, but macro-inefficient. So there is a belief in some form of the efficient market hypothesis here that there's so much information at the individual stock level. So it's very hard to outperform on a consistent basis being a stock picker and our hats off to folks who do it well consistently. But we find that there's less information across asset class. So rather than trying to pick between, say, like a Tesla and an Apple, we're really trying to pick between US stocks versus international stocks versus gold, cash as an asset class as well, bonds, etc. So much more of a macro focus. And then, you know, how do we do that? We do that by having built this model of the global capital markets. You know, we have this belief that that the global capital markets constitute a nonlinear dynamic system of interrelated variables, which is just a, a shortened way of saying, you know, we think that the global capital markets function as this system of cause and effect relationships, and that we can model these out. And these include characteristics like feedback, lags, phase changes, and that each relationship in and of itself is actually pretty straightforward and intuitive to understand. But with the lags and feedback and you put everything together, it becomes too hard for a human brain to comprehend. And so you need a computer to kind of keep track of things for you. And then finally, as a third kind of core tenet of, of how we believe the world works, we think that conventional measures of risk really just underestimate the true risk in investing. You know, typical modern portfolio theory has you building this efficient frontier using two assets with your backward bending curve. And, you know, it's a chart with Kager on one and standard deviation on the other. We think that, A, you know, that this is a little flawed because it assumes, A, that the correlations between these assets are static, which we know they're not. They do move. And it doesn't address the frequency or severity of, of extreme drawdowns, right? Those worst peak to trough declines that a portfolio experiences. So we attempt to address these shortcomings, you know, by minimizing portfolio drawdown as part of our optimization function, right? These once in a hundred year events seem to be happening with increased frequency. So we're trying to not assume a normally distributed pattern of asset price movements. I think the tails are much fatter than a conventional approach suggests and try to build that into our, our work that we do here. Great. Well, that's a great overview of the three-edge investment philosophy. Can you break it down a little more in terms of the investment process, how you actually construct portfolios? Sure. Yeah. So like I said, the model really engages in three major factors, these longer-term valuation factors, which aren't so great as a timing instrument, but kind of give you a frame of reference of where you're at more medium-term global macroeconomic factors, and then shorter-term, despite all that great work we think we did with valuation and economics, behaviorally, investors can act as a herd, whether in a virtuous or vicious way. And so we need these behavioral factors to identify those real short-term potential changes. 
And so you put all that together and the output of that analysis provides this, what we call risk adjusted projected returns for each asset class that we model. And these asset classes are all fighting for allocation in the portfolio versus one another, but more importantly, like we talked about earlier, but versus cash, which we model as an asset class as well. And we have a rule that if an asset has a worse risk adjusted projected return than cash, then why would you want to invest in it? You might as well as just invest in cash. And that's a way for cash to build up in the portfolio. So then these projections are fed right into our portfolio construction engine. It builds all the portfolios that we manage. We're going on about 15 different investment strategies at our firm, many with over a three-year track record. I believe on the Orion, OPS, and communities platform, we have three of them, what we call conservative, a more moderate, we call total return, and then an ESG flavor of that as well. And so each strategy has its own set of characteristics that govern the acceptable minimum and maximum levels of each asset class, right? For example, our conservative multi-asset tactical solution has a minimum of 6% equity at all times, but a maximum of 30, regardless of how wildly bullish we might be on equity. So we run our model daily, and typically each strategy is up for a reconstitution or a tactical shift on a monthly basis. But that said, there are some months we may trade intramonth if something meaningful changes. And in other cases, we may not trade for several months, right? So it really just depends on what's going on in the, the economic environment. So walk us through some of the differentiators. What makes 3Edge different from its competitors and peers? Yeah, you know, in our opinion, you know, we're different because we view the investing world differently than anyone out there. You know, I'm no, no stranger to having seen many quantitatively driven investment approaches. I've worked at a few other different quantitatively driven investment firms over the years and have had the fortunate ability to see many of these, these approaches. Other folks just don't take this cause and effect approach to modeling. What we don't do is we don't stick data into a machine and let it tell us how to invest, right? We're not running a regression analysis that provides us a formula or a neural network that's just a big set of, of numbers and weights and biases. We as humans create the thesis for these asset price movement relationships and then test them over a wide variety of geographies and across 150 years of market history. When the asset class projections change, we can very clearly and transparently understand why. Right, which isn't always easy for folks with different types of approaches to answer. So 3Edge, of course, is what many would consider like an ETF strategist, building portfolios out of ETFs. And quite frankly, you know, Winward and Winhaven are just classic names in this space, you know, looking back. So let's just talk about ETFs for a moment. And they have raised incredible assets in recent years, even last year, where it was a terrible year for investment flows. ETFs still had their second best year ever. And it wasn't just the second best year ever. It was an amazing year. And investor sentiment was negative. So can that growth continue? Yeah, I mean, I'd say so. My impression of the ETF space is it continues to grow as it siphons off assets from other wrappers called largely mutual funds. But I think as new money folds in, as it's gotten even larger, you're seeing institutional dollars roll in. BlackRock has an estimate of global ETF assets, which I think finished 2022 at around $10 trillion. They have it at $14 trillion by the end of 24. So, you know, being this easy tool for investors to be active, it's a great way to continue to reduce costs in your portfolio, to be liquid, transparent, building, you know, whether it's third-party asset management platforms, advisors being able to provide their clients UMA structures, this all lends itself to ETFs to build these portfolios. So, all right, well, let's make the argument for ETFs. Why should investors use them and what are their pros and cons? Yeah, I mean, the pros are a long list, transparent. 
low cost, tax efficient, the trading intraday, one can enter and exit at their leisure without gates, no lockups, front or back loads. There's over 1,700 listed ETFs just in the US. So there's exposures to nearly everything one would want. You know, I sat here thinking about, hey, what are the cons of ETFs? And I do struggle with it a little bit. But I guess I would say certain exposures that folks do want to include in their portfolio, like private equity or credit, certain private credit, maybe direct crypto, maybe if people want that, these aren't available. And so, you know, less liquid asset classes like this just don't lend themselves to working in that ETF wrapper as well, I guess. You know, private equity is a good example, by the way. I don't want to pick on any ETFs, but the private equity ETFs been a kind of a dog, but there's been some great stocks in the public equity space or private equity space that have done well. So it's a good example. So here's another question for you. And I bet this one you feel all the time is, okay, so ETF assets have grown like crazy. Models of ETFs are growing like crazy. But how can a boutique firm like 3Edge compete against the big proprietary ETF models from the ETF providers such as BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street Global Advisors? How do you compete? Right, right. It's a great question. They're co-opters, right? It's competition, but yep. also cooperation. Everything in the industry is like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know, it's a great question, particularly as many of these firms list their models with zero management fee, which from a headline looks really attractive for your advisor to get access to a model portfolio and not pay anything since they're collecting their revenue on their underlying ETF fees within the the model portfolio. I think three things really might resonate with folks on how a firm like ours might maybe can compete with the bigger folks. First, we find that our approach is differentiated enough as we discussed earlier. It's just it's just different from what other folks are doing. And I think the story resonates. We go outside of just traditional equity and fixed income. We also invest internationally and developed in emerging market equities. We utilize gold and commodities. And as mentioned, we utilize cash as an asset class too. I think too is part of Part of that, you know, we're making bigger tactical swings than those bigger folks. So, you know, a 60-40 from one of those bigger providers may swing to 50-50 or to 70-30. And maybe I'm being even too generous there. They might not even move that much. Whereas, say, our moderate strategy, total return, for example, has a minimum of 13% in equity and can go as high as 60% in equity. So a much bigger sandbox with more tools in that sandbox. And then three, I think our results... You know, up until recently, investing in U.S. equities was a winning play and being diversified really hurt your returns, right? The pandemic drawdown in 2020, and then certainly the calendar year 2022 has shown the benefits of diversification and more importantly, being tactical and responding to, to changing market dynamics. So, you know, we think our research and our investment committee did well during both of these time periods to help out. I would think in addition to the performance of positioning, I would also imagine a boutique firm like 3Edge would just be a better partner in the sense that you're more accessible. I mean, how many financial advisors could probably talk to the deputy CIO at BlackRock? You know, That's right. I think you're right. Yeah, we have access to folks, commentaries and video content like this. Absolutely. I think that's a great point. What about the comment that's pretty common in the press right now that direct indexing, again, is a big threat to ETFs. Again, direct indexing is instead of buying an index fund, you have a portfolio of individual securities that tracks an index, but the attraction to it, of course, you can customize it, either you know, concentration risk, tax reasons, ESG, whatever. But a lot of people think it's going to be an ETF killer. What do you think? Mm-hmm. You know, I love to see advancements in the space. I think all the new technology, new wrappers, active non-transparency, embedding options in ETFs, etc., direct indexing. I think it's all great. 
I think it's going to get used more for large taxable clients. You know, obviously Schwab and Fidelity waiving trading fees has helped make it easier for folks to use direct indexing so they don't get crushed with transaction fees on every single individual stock. I'm not sure it'll eclipse ETF growth or at least the the AUM level that ETFs have gotten, but I I certainly think there's a place for it in the array of investment technologies out there and the wrappers out there. So I'm sure it'll continue to grow, but, but perhaps not eclipse ETFs. It would be my guess. All right. Well, let's turn to your market outlook. What is Three Edge's view on the stock market heading into 2023? Yeah, well, we're coming off a bear market of 2022. Our base case is that you know, we're more likely to see lower lows in the months ahead. You know, we haven't yet bottomed, particularly for US equities, which our research, despite the drawdown of 2022, still suggests is incredibly overvalued by historical standards. And so just to be clear, I'm not calling for this, but we would want to see the S&P around 3,000 before it would even be in the ballpark of what we'd consider fairly valued. And again, not a prediction, just the math of where it would need to be. You know, the Fed being so behind the curve, raised rates so aggressively in such a compressed time frame, and we likely haven't felt the brunt of that yet due to the lags from their actions, which really do take several months to manifest and work their way through. You know, the second phase of this bear market may be forthcoming, might have just started this past week and ongoing in this earnings season. As earnings may disappoint, we may see markets take another leg down. So the Fed will be put in a tough spot if unemployment ticks up. While perhaps inflation hasn't receded, you know, to that preferred two percent range, you know, so will they abandon additional hikes in favor of their full employment mandate, right? So we'll have to wait and see how that all plays out. So you know, that's U.S. In terms of some of the other asset classes, you know, we do favor non-U.S. equities as the place to invest if and when the opportunity arises. We see we see some potential opportunities in China, or we saw them in China starting in late October. More recently, European equities. You know, we think the dollar's potentially peaked and it's come back somewhat already from its highs and it's probably unlikely to rise from here, which also bolsters the case for non-US investments. You know, in that vein, I'm just going to move through the other assets that we look at. We like gold, particularly if the Fed does indicate that their peak rate is coming and or the potential for an unwind of, of tightening to a more stimulative uh, reduction in rates or balance sheet expansion again, if, if that's uh, in the cards. Commodities to us are a bit of a wild card. We like them longer term as the potential for China to resume its place as this global growth engine is back on the table. But of course, there are risks, of course, with investing in China. You just never know what uh, type of new lockdowns, new types of policies could come out of nowhere that could kind of change that that thesis. With regard to bonds, we really continue throughout much of last year and still presently continue to favor inflation-protected securities over nominal bonds. So there's tips. And with shorter duration, particularly if we've seen the peak in real rates, we saw that a really big move in real rates last year from minus 1% up to about 1.5% positive. So that's a 1.5% real yield you're getting on top of CPI. And things may have leveled off there, which is generally going to be a good thing for tips and potentially for gold as well. And then we're still avoiding credit. We've been out of credit for quite some time now. We just think the risks don't warrant the risks of widening out credit spreads, particularly if, if earnings do worsen from here you know, the yield advantage offered by credit just isn't worth the risk. So Eric, I just want to talk a little more about international equities. You sort of talked about them, but I kind of want to get a little more specific if we can. And that is, how do you think about international equities, first of all, strategically? So do you do you have like a kind of a neutral weight that investors should consider for international equities? And then your tactical outlook, 
How does your tactical outlook on international look right now in terms of kind of a weight for a portfolio? I'm sure it depends on every individual client circumstance, but we're just looking at an all equity portfolio, for example. Right, right. So what we do in our strategies is we have minimum exposures, call them strategic, if you will, to US equities. And so we do that for a few reasons. But one is that we have just a tremendous amount of data on US going back 150 years. So it makes modeling across time a lot easier for these strategies that we we model. You could call that our strategic minimum for international equities is effectively zero. And then we can just build up on top of the zero position should the model indicate you know, that one particular international equity is attractive. And so what we're looking at is we're modeling out, broadly speaking, European equities, Japanese equities, China as a proxy for emerging market equities, and India as well. So currently, we've been in a situation where what we found, like I said earlier, towards the end of October, we saw a signal from the China model that found Chinese equities to be, after having spent basically a year plus as with a really negative outlook, I think Chinese equities from their peak in February of 2021 to the trough by the end of October of 2022 had fallen over 60%. So now it's a deeply undervalued asset class. Great, but not a timing instrument. Economically, very unattractive. But from behavioral lens that we look at, we crossed into this, what we call this oversold condition, which doesn't happen a lot in our model. And when it does happen, the model has had a decent track record, the next month being a pretty generous return. And this was no exception. So that wound up being a great call to get us in behaviorally into China. And then what we saw, the rising rate, the short-term rates, particularly in China, following that increase was indicative of future growth in the economy. So that was being taken as a positive sign there which has kept us invested since. And we've seen some nice returns from China since that bottoming out process in late October. And then more recently, what we've seen is European equities looking attractive. Our models are very sensitive to inflation in the region and the rate of change of inflation in particular. And as we know, Germany has had a long history with hyperinflation and being acutely sensitive to it. And so once we saw inflation peak out, I think it was 10.6% for the euro area, came down to 10.1. Now it's down in the nines. The model is just really rewarding that reduction in inflation through the central bank's efforts. All right, let's talk about the diversifying asset classes. So again, you kind of talked about fixed income and you talked about real assets such as gold. What about alternatives? How many different in your asset class schemes, how many alternative asset classes do you have? And what is sort of that strategic weight to alternatives over time as well? Yeah, so for us, we have a 4% minimum allocation to gold in, in all of our you know, multi-asset core solutions, which we think is great for inflationary bouts of inflation, which is great for geopolitical tensions, which is good for any, you know, any kind of tumultuous situation. Gold can be a nice ballast in the portfolio. And then we can build up on top of that. We are currently a bit overweight in gold right now. We do find it attractive. We think real yields have one of the key drive factors in the gold model is the not only the absolute level of real yields, but the rate of change of those real yields. And since they've peaked and have more or less been moving a bit sideways, if not down slightly, that's been a helpful factor to the gold projections that we make. Commodities, like international equities in our worldview, have that minimum strategic allocation of zero you could think of. And so it's really a tactical investment if and when it comes on. And we have had you know, a longer term outlook on broadly speaking commodities, but more importantly, agricultural commodities, we've had a really favorable outlook on in the medium to long term. And so we have a position on there as well with respect to those. You know, again, if China can become that global engine of growth again, we could see that that commodities allocation growing. We saw the White House 
unleashing the strategic petroleum reserve to help with increased prices we saw in energy recently. And so now that that's been drawn down, that maybe creates a floor on oil in particular as we try to rebuild that uh, petroleum reserve now. So that could only potentially be more helpful to commodities as we go forward. All right. One last question on Outlook, and that is, what are the risks to your Outlook? How do you know if you're wrong? I mean, what are the key factors you're looking for? Easy to tell in the future, right? (laughs) Early, not wrong. Sorry, wrong word choice. Early. I like that. You know, I'd say the biggest risk to this outlook and how we're positioned would just be the resumption of the bull market, particularly in the U.S. We were at or near our minimums in U.S. equities. So, you know, if the bull market really does take off from here, we might be playing catch up. You know, the Fed indicating a lower peak rate or actually being successful in getting inflation down to 2% in short order as the market's kind of expecting, that would likely require some repositioning in our strategies that hopefully our research would pick up on. You know, a key behavioral we look at is the 200-day moving average. Obviously, a very simple line one can overlay on top of any price chart. But when we study historical bear markets like, say, 1929, the Great Depression, or 2008 global financial crisis, you know, once that 200-day moving average starts to trend downward, then one indicator we like to see to signal the end of that bear market is the price climbing back above this line and staying there. You know, we've seen a few close calls so far in this particular drawdown. One last year, one actually happening now in the last couple of days where we've climbed over that 200-day moving average, but nothing has stuck just yet. But certainly, there'll be one indicator we might keep an eye on. All right. Well, let's turn now to some of the questions that we like to ask all of our guests here on the show. And the first is, you are surrounded at 3Edge by incredible resources and ideas. So considering that sort of knowledge backdrop, what is currently your favorite investment idea? I have to go with the favoring European equities. You know, we have it in many of our strategies. We also have this favorable outlook on the euro. Our euro outlook had been so deeply negative last year, and that's turned a corner. And now each month that goes by, that's getting even more positive. So, you know, getting European equity exposure, leaving it unhedged, inflation is coming steadily, you know, down in the region. And so that's all being, you know, reflective of really positive outlook in the region. Sometimes investing. You have to do it when there's blood in the streets, so to speak, when it feels worse. Yeah. It's been a long time, really, since people have said like European stocks are one of their top ideas. So, (laughs) but the valuations are there and the performance is now there too. And it could still still could run for a long time. So, all right. Our next question we like to ask is professionally and personally, we have the obligation to perform at a high level, both mentally and physically. So how do you maintain your energy and ability to perform at a high level? Well, you know, I work out in my garage gym almost every day. You know, I slowly acquired equipment throughout the pandemic. Is your garage cold? It is cold. It is cold. Yeah, I keep the garage doors up. Doesn't matter what the temperature is. It's become, you know, a pretty legit gym. I even have friends who might pop over for the occasional workout to get a sweat in. But seriously, we have a fantastic and passionate group of investors on our investment committee. You know, we're committed to learning, being well-read. We encourage everyone to read, share what's interesting with others to read. So, you know, that really keeps us all engaged. And of course, I think, you know, keep taking a break once in a while is really important too. You need a minute to unwind, three-day weekends, trips with the family, although those don't always tend to be vacations. That helps break up the day in and day out of of watching markets. Good. So you have been around, of course, so many successful people have helped you to where you are today. So kind of in the spirit of gratitude and continuous learning, who are some of the people you're professionally thankful for? And what are some of the key lessons you learned from them? 
Yeah. Well, I have to start with Steve Kukiara, a friend and mentor. I've learned an incredible amount from him and continue to do so on a regular basis. He's been a fantastic leader and you know, I just feel incredibly fortunate to be along for the ride here with him. I have to also mention the other member of our research committee. I referenced him earlier, Bob Phillips. He's been an amazing manager of mine over the years, inspiring me to work hard and offering sage advice and, and great stories along the way and driving me to be a better worker and a person more broadly. And then I guess, you know, what got me into finance and investing in the first place, my uh, business school professor, Don Santini. And this is a guy who knew the value of a dollar. He drove a 30-year-old car, not because he had to, but because, you know, why would you go out and spend money on a car, a depreciating asset? Having been an engineer myself and before I got into investing, he was the person to get me excited about the prospects of a career in finance and investing through his teachings and explanations. Nice. That was a car I just drove to school. He probably yeah. had a sports car at home that he didn't have students. <laughs> <laughs> that could be. That could be. <laughs> All right. Well, one more before we let you go. And you mentioned that reading is something that, you know, is important to you and your mental wellness as well. So tell us, what are you listening to and reading at the moment? And do you have recommendations for our listeners? Yeah. Well, I give a podcast recommendation, which is this podcast, obviously. Nice. Thank Fantastic. you. Fantastic. Yeah. There you go. You know, so I'd say that our short weekly videos that we do internally, that's with Fritz and Steve, they cover topical market items. I do monthly videos with our chief investment strategist, Fritz, as well. If folks are interested in getting regular updates on our Outlook on our website, YouTube channel, another podcast I want to make sure I reference. This is totally unrelated to finance, but if you're into health and longevity, I have great respect for... He's a doctor, Peter Atia's podcast. Highly recommend it if you're into it. It's very... I understand maybe 10 to 15% of what they're talking about, but that's really interesting nonetheless. As for books... You talk to people, they give you book recommendations, you go out and buy them. And before you know it, you have a huge stack of books that you just can't possibly get through. But some of these books that I've acquired and haven't yet read completely, you know, not necessarily related to finance, but Dawn of Everything by Graeber, Never Finished by David Goggins, Think Again by Grant, More Finance Focused, Power and Prediction by Agrawal, and a personal favorite of ours at Three Edge, this isn't necessarily new, but is Origin of Wealth by Eric Beinhacker. That's a great read. That's an intimidating reading list. <laughs> I think that's the second podcast in a row we've had David Goggins mentioned, I do believe. Uh, yeah. So nice. I'm going to have to read it now. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Eric. It's been great to have you. And tell us, how can listeners stay in touch and learn more about what's happening at 3Edge? Yeah, I would direct folks just to our website, 3, the number, edge, E-D-G-E-A-M.com. And from there, they can find our latest thinking, view from the edge. You can reach out. They can get portfolio positioning, fact sheets, et cetera, that would probably be the best way. Well, Eric, thanks for your time today. You know, I think even though we're recording this in mid-January, I think it's being published when we're all at the Orion Ascent Conference. And so that'll be pretty cool. And that's published during that time. So hopefully if some listener out there has listened to the podcast with us, they can come up to us and tell us, you know, some good feedback. Hopefully it's nice feedback, but okay. awesome. <laughs> hopefully it's it'll, nice. it'll come out where it sends. <laughs> so looking forward to seeing you there and thanks again for your time. Thanks so much. Thank you all. Really appreciate it. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Invest well and be well. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And hey, if you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. Thanks again for listening. Robin and I truly appreciate you giving us some of your valuable time. We hope to provide you in each episode something you can use in conversations or making decisions or both. 
If you like this podcast, you might also like some of our sister podcasts at Orion Advisor Solutions. First, we have the Wang the Risk podcast, which I host monthly. On behalf of Orion Risk Intelligence, this is where we consider various market scenarios regarding top-of-mind concerns among financial advisors and investors. Next, we have one of the top-rated and most popular podcasts in the financial industry, especially when it comes to behavioral finance, Dr. Daniel Crosby's Weekly Standard Deviations Podcast. And when it comes to all things fintech, we also have the bi-weekly The Fuse Show with Ryan Donovan and George Figuera, two of the funniest guys in the industry. You will learn something and laugh in every episode. Last, when it comes to more content, including commentary, videos, and other resources, please check out the website, orionportfoliosolutions.com, go to the research drop-down menu, and go to the Financial Advisor Success Hub. Thanks again, invest well and be well, and we'll talk to you next week. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.